Sometimes, sometimes, even for the best of us, it feels like God is sort of uninvolved. You may work in a situation where, on the whole, God is not involved in the decision-making process, at least not in an obvious sense. God's name may never be mentioned in your public, public sphere of interest unless it's in vain. You might go to school and you might never hear God's name mentioned or taken seriously, whether by our choice to marginalize God or by the apparent occasions of him seeming rather distant, it's rather easy for people to fall into something that's called deism. And so if you're here today and you would think, well, God's not necessarily involved in all the ins and outs of my particular life or my particular situation, I just want to know, uh, how often does that happen for you where you'll go through a week where you just kind of feel like, I don't know that God's around or he cares about the details of my life. For some of you, you might not admit that out loud, but on occasion, you might fall into what is called a, a practical deism, where you're not praying every day. It's not just that you didn't go to church that last week or that last month. It's just he seems sort of distant. So if you do have a tendency to fall into a Bette Midler-esque, from a distance God is watching over us, sort of a deism, I've got a really great book for you. It's the book of Esther. Now, if you've not heard of the book of Esther, you're not alone because a lot of Christians, they don't know much about the book of Esther. You may have never read the book of Esther It doesn't make the top four list. It's not as popular as Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John for Christians. In fact, for the first 600 years of Christian history, there was not a single commentary, Christian commentary, written on the book of Esther. Just not that well known. And maybe one of the reasons that people don't find Esther to be terribly compelling is because it just seems like it's a Jewish book. If you've heard of the Feast of Purim, that goes around the book of Esther. It's not really our thing. But beyond that... Esther is the book in the Bible that never mentions God. If you read through the book of Esther, all ten chapters, God is not mentioned, he's not referenced, and that seems to a lot of people to be very, very weird. But if you read through the book of Esther, here's what's going to happen. If you read really carefully and you read between the lines, which you have to, you will see God's fingerprints all over the book. If you read between the lines, you will see that God, though he is unseen, is still there on every page, guiding and even controlling what happens. You might imagine a a dollhouse where a big father is leaning over it for the sake of his daughter and is rearranging the furniture and the different pieces. The dad is not in the house, but he's not just watching over the house. Everything that happens, all of the movement, all of the pieces are where they are, when they need to be, in accordance with the father's hands. In the same way, when you come to the book of Esther, that's the God that you meet. God is nowhere seen, he's nowhere heard, he's nowhere discussed. And yet, God, who is beneath the surface, is moving and controlling because he is always concerned about his people. He's ever-present, ever-involved, ever-guiding, always concerned. That's God. So this morning, here's what we're going to do. We're going to cover the book of Esther. And we're not just covering a little bit of it. We're going to go through the whole book. And the reason we're going to look at the book of Esther is not simply because it's a little strange or out of the ordinary or even because there are twists and turns in the story, although there are twists and turns in the story. The reason we're going to look at this is because on occasion... 
Two reasons. One, on occasion it feels like God's kind of distant and he's not involved. And sometimes you might feel like your world is falling apart and you really need to know that God is actually present, keeping it together and moving it forward to a particular place for a particular purpose. So we're going to look at the book of Esther today. And I had two options available. One option is, is we could just read all ten chapters together. Just read through the book and then we'd be done, but we don't have time for that even. The other option is to invite someone who is actually there to share their firsthand experience of the book of Esther. And so that's what I've done. And so uh, I'm actually not going to be teaching for a while. I, I've invited someone else to come and talk through uh, the book of Esther for you. His name is Babak. And so if you would, uh, please give a warm welcome for Babak. Come on up here. Welcome. Yeah, I know, I look like the pastor. My name is Babak, and uh, it's really good to be here with you this morning. Um, my job, if you were in Great Britain, you might call me a personal valet, but in my country, in Persia, I was known as the uh, Chamberlain to the King, to Xerxes. You might know him as Ahasuerus, same person. Xerxes was a difficult person. In fact, for a while I figured I was not going to take the job because nobody ever knew anything about what he was going to do next. One minute you'd be friends and everything would be great, and the next minute you could tick him off and your life was over. For example, he had this friend, a leading official named Pythias, who very generously offered to give over $4 million to pay for a Persian military campaign, and Xerxes was so moved by the gift that he refused the gift and gave Pythias a gift in return. But a little bit later, when Pythias hinted that maybe one of his sons could be excused from the military campaign, Xerxes became so angry that he hacked the son in half and marched the army through the pieces on the way to war. That's what I mean when I say you never really knew about Xerxes. So I was hesitant to take the job, but I took it. And when I took it, I just decided I'm going to keep my mouth shut. I'm just going to go with the flow. It'll work out. But I did want to tell you one interesting series of coincidences that I witnessed. Very interesting chain of events. It all got started several years earlier after what was called the Bay of Salamis fiasco. Here's what happened. Xerxes was always passionate to extend the Persian Empire, and so he was attempting to overcome and conquer Greece. And he was about to pull it off, except for one thing. In this naval battle in the Bay of Salamis, his entire navy was wiped out. He had to sneak back, sneak back to Persia on a fishing boat. It was so humiliating. He was not the same again down in the dumps, brooding all the time. In fact, he started brooding over his former queen that he had done wrong, how he'd done her wrong. And it's true, he had done her wrong. Her name was Vashti. Poor Vashti. Couldn't get his mind off of her. And I thought, okay, enough's enough. What's past is past. I've got to help this king get his mind off of what has gone before and move ahead and have some life and vitality again. 
And so I figured, what is going to get his mind off of Vashti? And I thought, oh, women. Lots and lots of women. So I made the suggestion, suggestion to him, uh, Xerxes, why don't you invite all of the most beautiful young virgins from around the Persian Empire to the palace? That way you can get to know them and maybe there will be one that is of particular interest that you can make your queen. And he went for the idea. And we had all the prettiest girls there from all over the kingdom, beautiful, and he saw them all. But there was one in particular that really caught his eye that he wanted to see more and more and more until finally that's the only one that he wanted to see. Her name was Esther, and she was strikingly beautiful. But there was one problem. She did not look Persian. Dark-complected, more dark-complexioned than the rest. But she was beautiful, and... It got his mind off Vashti, and he was happy, so whatever. It was great. Things went well for a while. For about five years after he made her his queen, things went really well, went smoothly. And then one day, Xerxes is seated in the palace on his throne, and in comes Haman with a particular suggestion. Now, Haman was the second in command. He was very ambitious. Rather quickly, over a period of just a few years, he he rose to the top of the State Department so that now he was the second in command over all of Persia, only behind Xerxes. I didn't like him so much, didn't really trust him. I never told Xerxes this. You know, go with the flow. But Haman came into the royal court and he explained his proposal to Xerxes. Xerxes! There is in the kingdom right now this group of people, and he doesn't say what group it is. There's this group of people who who have proven to be a very disruptive element. They have their own particular laws and their own peculiar ways, and they don't pay attention to our laws and our ways. They're very disruptive. We cannot continue to tolerate their presence in the kingdom anymore. So I have a suggestion. Let's eliminate them. I'm willing to spend personal funds to get rid of these people. Well, what do you think Xerxes says? No king wants to have a group of people around like this. So Xerxes says, okay, Haman, that sounds good to me. Make it happen. Only don't use your own money. Just use government funds. Now, it was like Xerxes to be that way. He didn't ask who they were, what this was all about. He just said, okay, go do it. Whatever. That's how Xerxes was sometimes. I wasn't so concerned about Xerxes as much as I was perplexed by Haman because it wasn't like him to be so solicitous of the king's welfare and nor was it like him to give away so much money or at least offer to give away so much money without expecting anything in return. And so I wanted to know what in the world is going on here. Fortunately, I had a friend in Haman's household. He was the tutor to one of Haman's sons. Here was the situation. Haman had it out for one person and because of one person he wanted to destroy the entire race of people. Because one man had irritated him, he wanted to destroy them all. Here's the situation. In Persia, we had this thing called the Citizens' Council, and on the Citizens' Council, there were people from all over the kingdom. People from every different tribe and and, and race and ethnicity were chosen, elected to be on this Citizens' Council. And the Citizens' Council existed so that these people from all over the kingdom could deal with minor matters so small that they would never come to the king's attention. Well, Haman, part of his job as the second person in command, 
was to attend these citizen council meetings and to sort of oversee and observe. When Haman would come into the citizens' council, the different citizens would rise and then kneel before Haman, except for one, the Jewish representative. He never bowed down. Never got up, never bowed down, and that's all Haman saw. Everybody else bowing before him except for this one man. And Haman thought, okay, Mr. Jewish representative, I'll get you and I'll get all your people. And so he had it in his heart to liquidate the Jews, to kill them all. And when I say liquidate, I mean liquidate. Because I saw the the decree, and it's much like what occurs in your scripture. The decree was to kill and destroy and annihilate all the Jews. And just in case anybody was wondering, it included the young and the old, the babies, as well as the women. On the 13th day, on one day, on the 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Adar, and then to confiscate their property or to plunder their possessions. It was very clear, quite thorough. To kill, destroy, and annihilate. Can't get much more clear than that. To do it on one day, and that's absolutely everybody, all of the Jews. The proposal was for nothing less than complete and utter annihilation of the Jews. Utter genocide. I I saw the decree, and I thought to myself, those Poor Jews. They only have 11 months left to live. The whole thing didn't make sense to me because in Persia we were relatively tolerant of other religions. And best I could tell, the whole reason this Jewish representative never bowed down is because of particular religious convictions. I thought about talking to Xerxes about this, but then again I thought, well, why should I stick out my neck? Go with the flow, and besides that, it's a little bit too late anyway. The decree is already being circulated throughout the kingdom. A few days later, I was walking down the palace, passing the second floor window, and I heard this terrible commotion out in the courtyard. This man was screaming and wailing and making an awful noise. It was terrible, and he looked a mess. His hair was disheveled, his face was smeared with ashes, his clothes were torn. And I thought to myself, somebody's got to tell that man to get away from the palace. And that might as well be me. So I started heading to the stairs to go down the stairs to tell him to get away. And on my way, I saw Faraz, who happened to be a friend of mine and also an attendant to the queen. He was going in the same direction, only he was carrying some clean clothes. I said, hey, Faraz. He says, hello, where are you going? And Faraz tells me, well, I'm going outside to that man because the queen has given me these clean clothes to give him. And I said, okay. Both of us don't need to handle it. You take care of it. And then I thought to myself, what a queen to be thinking about some bum who needs some new clothes. Just a few moments later, Faraz comes back in. He's still carrying the clean clothes. And I ask him, well, what's the matter? Did did they not fit? And he says, you're never going to believe who that is. And I said, who is it? He says, it's the Jewish representative. And I said, oh, okay. No wonder he's wailing. He probably saw the decree. But what is he doing around the palace? Faraz explained to me, he came here giving me this piece of paper, and he told me, take this paper to the queen and have her go see Xerxes about it. I said, let me see that. And I took it, and sure enough, 
it was the decree. And I said, but what does this have to do with the palace? He said, I don't know. He just told me that I need to see Esther and to tell Esther to go see Xerxes. And I said, but what does Xerxes have to do with anything? He has nothing to do with any of that. And besides, I mean, why involve all of them? And for us, I know, I know, I know. But look, he told me to tell her and he seems pretty upset about it. So I better go do what it is that he told me to do. I said, okay. So I gave him the paperback. He took off. I saw him later that afternoon. And Faraz looks like he was, he looked like he was sitting on a powder keg. He says to me, Babak, Babak, you're never going to believe this. The queen is a Jewess. I said, you're kidding. No, no, seriously. She's a Jew. And when I gave her the decree, her face turned as white as a sheet, but she told me now is not a good time to go in and see the king because he has not called for her in over a month. And I said, yeah, I know. He gets that way sometimes. Then Faraz explained, well, she told me to go back and tell the Jewish representative. His name is Mordecai, and he also happens to be her uncle. She told me to go back and tell him that now is not a good time to see him. If she goes in uninvited, he could become very severe. You know how Xerxes is. And so I went back and I told Mordecai, and Mordecai told me to go back and tell her that good time or no, she better do something about it because the decree was to kill all Jews and even being a queen was not going to save her from this. And then he said to me something really interesting. Faraz explained to me that Mordecai just had a moment and said, perhaps, perhaps she's been made queen for such a time as this. I asked Faraz, what's she going to do? And, and he said, well, she's going to take her chances and go in and see Xerxes. Do you think we ought to warn him about all of this? And I said, no way. I'm not putting myself between Xerxes and Haman and Esther. Besides, it's not going to hurt to just watch things play out. And I thought, this is going to get really interesting. Haman wants to kill the Jews. Esther is a Jew. And Xerxes is in the dark about all of this. Well, sure enough, a couple of days later, it got really interesting. Xerxes is on his throne, holding court, side door opens, and in walks Esther, and she was looking amazing. She really fixed herself up perfectly well. He got his scepter down real fast, looked at his wife, and he also noticed that something was really bothering her. So he asked her, is there anything I can do for you? It looks like something is bothering you. Tell me what it is. Can I give you something? Can I do something for you? And I thought, okay, now's the moment. Now she's going to come out with it. But she didn't. She didn't say anything. She simply said, I, I, I've prepared a lunch. I've got a specially catered lunch that's going to occur in the queen's quarters. I want you to be there. And I also want Haman to be there. And I thought, why the delay? Why don't you just come out with it? But then later on, I figured it was better off for her not to talk to her husband because Haman wasn't around. Well, at noon, there was this specially catered lunch, and they're there in the queen's quarters, and it was a wonderful lunch. And while they were lingering over dessert, the king turns to the queen and says, Esther, I know something's bothering you. Come out with it. Tell me what is it. But she wouldn't say anything. She simply said, I've got another lunch coming up tomorrow. Would you be there? And I'm thinking, what in the world are you waiting on? But then I discovered later on that it was great that she waited between that first lunch and that second lunch because between the first lunch and the second lunch, 
something extraordinary happened. Actually, two extraordinary things happened that set things up perfectly. And I just came to see that sometimes we worry about what's coming next, and we shouldn't because when we get to what comes next, we look back on what has come before, and we go, I should have never worried in the first place. But it's amazing how sometimes things work out. Here are the two things that happened between the lunches. First of all, after that first lunch... Haman went home floating on cloud nine. He was so excited because now he had had lunch with royalty. And so he called all his friends together and they had a big party and he was just bragging about how how amazing he was and how much money he'd made and how quickly he'd risen in government and he had been on this mountain peak with with royalty and a private luncheon in the queen's quarters and he was on top of the world. Oh, and he had another royal lunch scheduled for tomorrow. So his friends are applauding him and patting him on the back, but there was one problem. There was one moth in the little Persian rug that he was creating for himself, and that was Mordecai. Because the reality was, every time he would come to the citizens' council, everybody would still bow down except for Mordecai, even after the decree went out. And he was ticked off. And his friends encouraged him, you know, it'd probably be a good thing to go ahead and kill him before the appointed day. Just take Mordecai out of the picture before the appointed day. Haman thought that was a great idea. And so together with his friends that evening, they turned the big, huge tree in his backyard into a gallows made for a nice, high-hanging tree, and the intent was to hang Mordecai on it the following day. That's the first interesting thing that happened between the lunches. The second interesting thing that happened between these two lunches is that Xerxes suffered from insomnia. And normally he slept like a baby. Most of the time he slept through the night, no problem. But around three o'clock in the morning, he called out, Babak, Babak. And I'm in the next room. I'm like, okay, yes, sir. I can't sleep. Go bring something to read to me that will help me to sleep. And I thought about it and I thought, Well, nothing would put me to sleep faster than the king's memoirs. So I asked him, you want me to get your personal memoirs and read them to you? And he said, yeah, that sounds great. And so I went and got the scrolls, opened them up, and started reading through the memoirs. And about 15 minutes into the reading, I came across something kind of interesting, something about this Jewish representative who overheard this plot to assassinate the king and how he had made this known to the queen and and then foiled the plot and saved the king's life. And, And when I read that, Xerxes kind of perked up and said, I I do remember Esther saying something about that. Uh, Tell me, did we ever reward, what was his name, Mordecai? Mordecai. Did we ever reward that guy? Did we ever acknowledge this? And I read a little bit further in the memoirs, and I said, no, we never did anything. Xerxes said, first thing in the morning, you remind me of all this because we need to rectify this oversight. And I thought... Mordecai is is about to be hanged by Haman, and he's about to be honored by Xerxes. I can't wait for the morning. Morning came. Xerxes, first thing on the throne, says, Is anybody, are any of my staffers here, any officials here? And someone said, Yeah, Haman's outside waiting to talk to you. Bring him in. Haman comes in, but he doesn't get out the first word concerning his wonderful plan to hang Mordecai. Rather, the king says, 
Haman, there is this man in my kingdom that I really want to honor. I owe him so much. I am deeply indebted to this man and I want to honor him. I'm just wondering, is there a way where I can publicly let everyone know that this is a man to whom I owe so much? And Haman said, I've got some ideas about that because he thought the king was talking about him. Oh, king, I've got some ideas. Xerxes, if you want to honor this man publicly so that everybody knows how important he is to you, you ought to take your royal ceremonial robe and drape it over his shoulders. Put a crown of gold on his head. Take this man and seat him on your royal stallion and then have a leading official Take him around on the horse through the streets, shouting loud for all to hear, this is the man the king wants to honor. Xerxes, whoo, that's good. Hey, Haman, you're a leading official. I want you to do all of that for Mordecai. In fact, the council meeting's about, about over. Why don't you get all the trimmings that you just mentioned Take him over to Mordecai, set him up on the horse, and lead him through the streets. And as you're leading him through the streets, shout loud for all to hear, this is the man the king wants to honor. Now, you you should have seen Haman in that moment. It looked like, well, I mean, his face was beaming one minute, and it looked like he just got run over by a camel. It was terrible. Xerxes turns to me and says, what is, is everything okay with Haman? And I say, well, I, I think he's okay, or at least I'm pretty sure he'll make it at least a few more hours. Haman did the little parade with Mordecai, and we got lots of great reports. Noon rolls around, and I'm there in the chamber with Xerxes, and Faraz is there with the queen in her chamber, and then in comes Haman. He's looking a little peaked, but he's pulled himself together. He's okay. We have a great lunch, but then after lunch, the king turns to the queen and says once again, please tell me what's bothering you. I know something's bothering you. Is there anything that I can do? Is there anything I can give you? And I thought, here it comes. And sure enough, the queen says, yes, there is something you can do. There is something you can give to me. You can give me my life and the life of my people. For we are about to be killed, destroyed, and annihilated. And every one of those words was like a slap across Haman's face or like a punch to the gut. And the king said, who in the world would dare threaten the queen like this? What is going on? Tell me the man. And she said, Haman. And the king took a moment and said, Haman did what he, oh. And everything began to become clear for him and the thoughts overwhelmed him. As he was processing everything, he stepped outside onto the patio. When he did, Haman came over to Esther and began to plead, Esther, Esther, I had no idea if I would have known. And and he was begging for his life and Esther would have none of it. She turned her face, turned her back, walked away. Haman, of course, pursued her, got down on his knees, was begging for his life. In fact, as she would not listen to him, he grabbed Esther to make her listen as he begged for his life. And she had to shove him away. And as she was shoving him away, that's when the king came in, got the wrong idea and said, Would you molest my queen in my palace? Cover his face. And that was it. Because when the face was covered, when the death veil dropped, it was all over. 
And that's when I spoke up. Didn't normally say much, but I felt like it was safe. Xerxes, last night, Haman took the tree in his backyard and turned it into a nice hanging tree for Mordecai. It really does make for a nice high gallows. And Xerxes says, you hang Haman on it. And that's what happened. A few days later, a new decree was passed. Now, in Persia, when a decree was passed, you couldn't undecree a decree. But what you could do is pass a new decree to offset the old decree. And there was a new decree. And the new decree said that the Jews, on that day that had been determined for them, the Jews could band together. They could use any means necessary so as to defend themselves if people came to do them harm. The decree also said that the Jews could choose to band together and attack their enemies if they so chose. And there would be no repercussions. The government would look the other way. You should have seen the Jews dancing in the streets over that one. Later on, I was on the second floor of the palace again at that window. And I looked out over the courtyard. And I could see in the distance the backyard of Haman and Haman hanging from that tree. And I thought to myself, what a weird series of coincidences. How, what are the chances of Esther, of all of those pretty girls from all over the kingdom, what are the chances of Esther being the one that was chosen to be the next queen, even though she wasn't Persian? What were the chances that she'd be related to the Jewish representative? What were the odds of the king losing sleep on that night? What were the chances of me going to the right book and reading just the right section at just the right time? And I thought to myself, maybe these Jews aren't just lucky. Maybe these people have a God who watches over everything and who actually has his fingerprints on everything around their lives. That's the story of Esther. Now, before we uh, continue on this morning, and I invite up a couple of people who are very uh, important to us, beloved by us, I want to mention four key points, four key takeaways from the book of Esther. And we'll probably come back to these over the course of the next couple of weeks as we're in this series. Just O3, Ozone, high-level view of ground-level problems. Here, here are four takeaways that I, I want you to hang on to this week. And the first is this. While painful circumstances sometimes cause us to say, oh, no, God never says, oh, no, because God is never surprised by anything and he's always in control. That doesn't mean that we don't go, oh, no, on occasion. I mean, you know. The Jews only had the threat of genocide hanging over their heads. But God never goes, oh, no. The second thing, oftentimes, after we say, oh, no, we often look back and say, oh, wow, because we often get to see in the rearview mirror at least a glimpse of how God worked all things together. We don't get to see it all the time, but frequently, after we've gone through a season, we look back and go, wow, God had a plan. We, knew, we should have known before we saw the plan working out that God had a plan, but oftentimes, after the oh no, there's the oh wow moment, like Babak experienced. 
The third truth I want you to take away is after several intervals of oh no followed by oh wow, we naturally learn to respond to every upcoming challenge with okay. You go through these seasons and then the next time there's a challenge, you go, okay, been there before, God's in control. Not that the oh no's don't kind of still concern you, but you don't panic. When you're a believer and mature in your faith, you don't panic. Also, you recognize if you are a mature believer that those who haven't gone through these intervals of oh no, oh wow, they will panic a little bit more and you're patient with that. You are. You're patient with that. The last truth is God, God's providential timing, it actually is perfect in all things. So while on occasion we hit these moments in our journey that disturb us, the reality of God's providence keeps us steady and stable and grounded.